and welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor scene by scene, talk about Harvey Picar, and discuss the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists. I'm Josh Newfeld of joshnewfeld.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And we have a returning guest star today. Hello, I'm Whitney Matheson of, I guess, WhitneyMatheson.com, but also at Whitney Matheson, so many things. Well, good to have all of you back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me back. So today we are discussing scene number 22 of American Splendor, which corresponds to chapter 14 of the DVD and is titled Delusions of Grandeur. It starts at minute 56, second 33, and ends five minutes and 58 seconds later at the one hour mark and two minutes and 31 seconds. So this scene opens uh, with a continuation of Joyce Brabner's diagnoses of some of Harvey's friends and colleagues, starting with Mr. Boats who she says has a paranoid personality disorder, PPD. And then uh, there's a little 12-second scene where Robert Crumb returns, and he's diagnosed as being polymorphously perverse. And then Harvey is diagnosed again as having delusions of grandeur, which is because he gets a call from an L.A. producer who wants to make a play about his life. So they head out to California, we're assuming some time passed, Westward Ho. They go out to see a play based on American Splendor, starring two other actors playing Harvey and Joyce. Harvey enjoys that quite a bit. Joyce doesn't seem to enjoy it quite as much. Then it's back to Cleveland, and again, Harvey seems pretty upbeat, feeling like things are going well. He's been getting some public attention. There's a, a trade paperback, a collection of his work is going to be published by a major publisher. But Joyce has other things on her mind, one of them being the thought that vasectomies can be reversed. She wants to start a family, which is the last thing on Harvey's mind. And at home, things worsen. The apartment's even more messy. That's the understatement of the year than it ever was before. The tensions between Harvey and Joyce are boiling over. And just when it seems things can't get any worse... They get a call from David Letterman's production company asking them to come to New York and be on the David Letterman show. So, and and that gets uh, Joyce gets up from the futon. That's what gets her up from the futon, exactly. So, yeah, as you said, the scene transitions with Joyce doing more of her diagnosis with Mr. Boats, Crumb, the phone rings. Joyce is on the futon reading a book. Harvey's leaving a message. You know, things are popping for Harvey. Things are starting to pop for some reason, you know? And what year is this supposed to yeah. be? Like 85, 86? When? Yeah, it's a little vague, but I think that's around the time. I, I actually should have looked up when Harvey's first appearance on David Letterman was, because that would sort of cap it for us. I can look that up while you guys continue talking. And... During that diagnosis scene, when it's kind of transitioning, the music that's playing is actually by R. Crumb's band, the Cheap Suit Serenaders. Is that's that right? right? Do you know yeah. the name of the song? Did you find that out? It was the Hula Medley oh, okay. with Robert Crumb on lead vocals, I believe. Right. And also, I think you had a note that the stage theater production is actually a conflation of two productions, basically, that were made of Harvey's life in theater terms. 
Should I get into that now? You can. And, and we'll say that in the movie that, you know, in the scene, in the stage production of Harvey Picard's life, Harvey Picard's character is portrayed by Donnell Logue or Donal Log or whatever. I don't know how to say his name. I think it's Donald Logue. Donald Logue. Well, it sounds better. so easy when Whitney says it. <laughs> Whitney says it. And Molly Shannon, who I love. Mm-hmm. Mary Catherine Gallagher. There you yeah, go. Superstar. Superstar. And then the scene that they portray in the theater basically reenacts their first date, culminating with the Joyce character throwing up in the toilet. And the, the transitions over to a song being played by Etan Mursky, who, Josh... Yes, we'll we'll be hearing from later on this very episode. Excellent. Um, the real Harvey chimes in at one point, as he's been doing as a voiceover. Yes. We don't always cut to his face or anything like that. We hear his voice a lot. And he chimes in and he says, if you think reading comics of your life is weird, try watching a play about it. God only knows how I'll feel about this movie. You know, so it's almost like... We're waiting for Harvey's review. <laughs> yeah. You know, you kind of want him to kind of come in at the, at the end credits and say what he thought about it. Yeah, um, it's meta. It goes meta because first we see Paul Giamatti Harvey <laughs> watching Donald Logue Harvey yeah. commented on by real Harvey. By real yes. Harvey. Yeah. Oh, I That's love right. it. That's right. I love it. Never been done One before. of these things that makes this movie so fascinating. That's right. And at some point, because of the play, and this is an interesting thing, because of the play, Doubleday Books decides to publish a collection like a best of American Splendor, right? Well, I don't know if they were saying it was because of the play. It just seemed like everything was, like you were saying, he's everything was sort of hitting right at that moment I, but for I, him. I also feel, and this is something that we can talk a little bit later about, but like how other media tends to help uplift comics mm-hmm. and put you know push it into a different stratosphere you know because because of the it popularity, was popularity like theater movies songs right. you know you have a guy playing a song called american splendor you have a theater production now he's getting a book deal you know after how many years of publishing an annual comic mm-hmm. you know i mean that's just the truth you know that's been happening throughout the decades you know comics seem to need the crutch right almost of other popular mediums in yeah. order to uplift them you know, and I'm sure you've noticed that. Of course. You know, over the years. So when um, you say you, who we were pointing to, there. Whitney. Oh, okay. Because you. you know, the listeners can't oh, tell. Uh, if I could actually just yes. jump in again, because as the somehow I've become the resident defender of Joyce Brabner on this mm-hmm. podcast, I was noting in her bio that it was right around this time that she started helping Harvey with his publicity and distribution. Mm-hmm. So she actually started. It'll show up in a couple of episodes, but she started this idea of taking bits of Harvey's old clothes and sewing dolls with his (laughs) likeness on them. And she was doing that at this point already, starting to help promote his stuff. And they went to the first San Diego, they went to their first San Diego Comic Con, I think in 1985, which was right around then. And at that point, she, according to an interview I read with her, she helped him get like nine new distributors at that point. So I don't know if maybe he had one distributor or it was self-distributing right. up to that point, but she took him to a whole other level. So it's possible that just, you know, a confluence of all these things, including getting much wider distribution, Absolutely. that led to the double day. That deal. helps. That definitely helps. And again, getting a mainstream book publisher, you know, get you in all the bookstores versus yeah, the comic sure. shops definitely helps. Because it made me think about Picar's career. You mm-hmm. know, like, would we have known about... Would he have gotten this far without like a double day book, without 
a song without the theater. Without being on Letterman. So, you know? by the way, the answer is that his first appearance on Letterman was 1986. So, again, right around this right. same time. But getting back to the stage production thing, is this, can I chime sure, in now? Please. So. So yeah, as I was telling you guys in the green room beforehand, the movie is is fudging a little bit of the details because the there was a, a L.A. production of American Splendor, but that was not launched until 1990. Mm-hmm. And in 1985, which is around when this is happening, that was the first production of American Splendor, and it was done by Independent Eye Theater Group in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it starred a guy named Herb Odell, who played Harvey. And Conrad Bishop was sort of the mastermind behind the whole thing. And uh, he was a friend of Joyce's from earlier, and, and she showed him Harvey's stuff, and he adapted a number of pieces into a production. And then in 1987, there was another production in Washington, D.C. at the Arena Stage, starring Richard Bauer playing Harvey and Bridget Cleary, who I assume played Joyce. And so then in 1990, there's the, the more well-known production, because that one was in L.A. It was it was not at the Pacific, what was it, Pacific something? Resident Theater. Yeah, it was at Hollywood's Theater slash Theater, spelling the two different ways, T-H-E-A-T-R-E and T-H-E-A-T-E-R. Mm-hmm. And that production starred Dan Castellaneta, oh. famously voice of Homer Simpson. And that production ran for a year. Wow. So that was a Who very... else did it star? Do you know? Yeah, it had um, Richard Coleman, Steve Sheridan, Monica Horan, David O'Shea, Andy Wilson, and Siobhan Fallon. And the late Marilyn Monroe. Oh, Siobhan Fallon. <laughs> oh, she was in it too? Oh. Yeah, Siobhan Fallon, comedian and character yeah. actor, was in that as well. Though mm-hmm. I'm not sure who played what roles. But the interesting thing is, from everything that I've seen about all these old theater productions, is the previous productions were much more stripped down and like just basically taking, you know, whole stories of Harvey's and adapting them mm-hmm. just verbatim and not even linking them together in any kind of sequential narrative. So vignettes, basically. More like a series of vignettes. And so to me that even more, I mean, like it's interesting because probably Harvey was more involved with them and like wanted that. But to me, the reason why this movie works so well and what's been so fascinating about it for me is doing the research to find like how they strung all these different elements together into a narrative that pays off in sort of the way that a traditional story yeah. does. So just interesting sort of going back and comparing the different approaches to adapting material. And then we like throughout this scene, Joyce, played by Hope Davis, is depressed. She's morbidly depressed. Yes. Mm -hmm. She can't get out of the futon and she defends it. And at one point, Harvey is like, played by Paul Giamatti, is is saying, get out of bed. Come on, it's one o'clock already. And she's like, it's a Saturday. And it's like, it doesn't matter what day it is. You're like this every day, you know? And we get to the source of her depression. Or I don't know if she was thinking about this while on the futon, but when they come back to Cleveland, they're in the airport and she looks around her and she sees everyone greeting each other and she sees a lot of mothers talking to their children. And in a way, she discovers that's what I'm missing is a sense of family. You know, that's when she blurts out like, you know, vasectomies can be reversed. And of course, he freaks out. And he's like, I already told you the minute you met me, you know, like I don't I'm not good with this. I, I don't think I'm ever going to be good with kids. Right. You know? So it creates more tension. And of course, she gets more depressed and miserable, diagnoses herself finally as clinically depressed. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where Harvey tries to buy a bunch of tea, but to no avail. That doesn't help, you know. 
And then that's because well, he ends up chucking it at her head. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I, I tried. At least I tried here, you yeah. know. Like Thanks a lot. But that's when there's this kind of Hail Mary that happens when he gets a, a phone message from that David Letterman producer who is voiced by American Splendor movie producer Ted Hope. That's his little cameo. Yeah, Ted. And of course, that's when Joyce gets up out of the futon. Yeah, I noticed that she's more supportive and excited about him being on TV than she was she about the whole She probably sees the opportunity, thing. you know? She probably recognizes, oh... It's like an order of magnitude bigger audience. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Because she definitely never seemed excited about the play thing. Like, even from the moment that Harvey called her and said that yeah. this was happening, she said, delusions of grandeur. But it, it wasn't delusion. He actually had been told that there was right. going to be a playmate. Yeah. Right. And then the whole scene at the play, which I'd love to talk about, with Molly Shannon and Donald Logue, <laughs> the different reactions of Harvey and Joyce is pretty hilarious. Yeah, that was very funny watching. <laughs> I mean, because it's a date scene and I guess he's getting a little frisky, you know. Well, she was getting frisky. All right, so okay, let's do right. it. Let's talk about it. Do it. So first of all, it was funny to see a scene that we had already seen in the movie now being reenacted in theater, <laughs> even down to the cat. Did you notice that the cat was in there too? Yeah. There was like a cardboard cutout of the cat <laughs> oh just sitting on the stage. But... Yeah, it was just funny to see how Molly Shannon and Donal Logue played the role so differently than the way uh, Hope Davis and right. Paul Giamatti. But also, like, the stage Joyce was a lot more sexy and, like, into the whole right. kissing yeah. thing oh, yeah. <laughs> than the Hope Davis Joyce. Right. So that, that was just and fun And then she's to see watching that. it kind of like, uh. Ugh, whatever. <laughs> and he's getting all, like, ornery and, like, getting into it. Like, it's kind of weird looking you know it's very funny and he's starting to get a taste of fame because mm -hmm. when they're coming back to cleveland in the airport he also has a look on his face yes. like a cheshire cat you know yes. like he's really getting into this like mm -hmm. oh is there's a play about me now and mm -hmm. i'm gonna have a book and they, and they call him in variety called him the blue collar mark twain mm -hmm. you know which is like a really cool kind of description of his work yeah so it starts off with depression, but there's a, like a light at the end of the tunnel type thing is how it ends, you know? And if you think about it, it kind of mirrors a little bit when I had talked to Ted Hope about, you know, well, you know, you, you clearly like American Splendor in the comics. I know Harvey. Why don't you make a movie? And he's like, I want to do that. Could you connect me? And I did. And it was Harvey who kind of was like, eh, I don't, you know, sure. Okay, I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. And then apparently it was Joyce that called Ted back, right. you know? After, you know, he made an attempt. So I guess it mirrors in a way like uh, the Hope Davis Joyce mm -hmm. kind of like being, you know, resurrected from her tomb of misery and, and like seizing the opportunity. Yeah, I feel like she had a finger on the pulse of pop culture in a way that Harvey didn't because he he made an effort to not engage with popular culture. And so mm -hmm. she at least could recognize like, OK, mm -hmm. TV's bigger than theater David Letterman, very hip, you know, like she, she's, and even in real life, you know, sure, there's a, it's nice to have a couple of small theater productions here and there, but if a real producer from a real production company that has a track record right. wants to make yeah. a movie, let's talk to them. Whereas right. Harvey might have just been like, yeah, I've been through all this before and right. whatever, right. you know, so. And, and I presume also she would not compromise. I mean, she also saw it as a, it's a talk show. It's not someone trying to do a version of your life. You know, right. Harvey can go and talk about it you right, know, from right. his own point of view, mm -hmm. you know, which is helpful. 
Did you have any other observations, Whitney and Josh? Oh, uh, have we gotten to the song in the play? So the yeah. song... Dean mentioned mentioned it, yeah. Yeah, I did mention Eton Mursky, who we're going to share an interview that Josh did on this episode. Well, I was curious if that was a song that was specifically in the original play or if it's just... I mean, I assume that it is, but it's not. No, it's totally just not. In the movie. It's original, made for the movie, written I, because, by Eton Mursky, yeah. Oh, that's... Awesome, because it's so it's that's also very typical of that time as you like mid 80s movies, especially would have like like Revenge of the Nerds, which you talked about in the previous episode. I think there is a song in that movie called Revenge of the Nerds where they say the words Revenge of the Nerds mm-hmm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like that happened in so <laughs> many things mm-hmm. in the 80s. So on the nose. Yeah, mm-hmm. like the Goonies had a song about called, you know. They're talking about the Goonies. Right. So, yeah, that made me laugh because it was really specific. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of musician Eitan Mursky and his song American Splendor, why don't we talk to Eitan and find out how he got involved with the movie? The whole story is sure to surprise and delight you. Take it away, Eitan. that I could be somebody It looks like I was wrong I thought that I could make my mark But I'm afraid I've waited much too long now Where is my American splendor In a world that's cloudy and gray We're pleased to have on the show singer-songwriter Eitan Mursky. Welcome. Hi. Good to be here. So... Tell us about your involvement with the American Splendor film. Well, it started, uh, a friend of mine, Ann Golder, she was the um, casting director on American Splendor. And she called me in actually to audition to play Harvey. Really? And uh, now why that happened, I don't know. (laughs) I can't tell you. I mean, not that I'm not, uh, couldn't potentially do it, I, I, but I, I'm not an actor. I, I'm, not, I'm not professionally an actor. I The only professional part I had was that actually that I had a bit part in uh, the film Happiness. If anyone sees it, I'm the angry picketer. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm the one that accosts uh, Jane Addams' uh, character when she's uh, breaking the strike at the ESL school. All right. So... Uh, and I happen to have written the uh, title song for that film. But anyway, so I, I was called into audition for Harvey. I don't know if, if it was just this thing where they were trying to show that they were leaving no stone unturned or she really thought that there was some point to it. Uh, I came in, I auditioned, uh, did some scenes. I know I did the scene where Harvey first shows Crumb, uh, you know, his stick figures and asks if he'll do the... Uh, drawings uh, you know when crumb says he'll do it and he's like oh you'll do that for me and <laughs> i know there was another scene later on where he's cancer uh, maybe some maybe the scene with the doctor where he can't yeah. talk i think that was one of the audition scenes so i did that i mean i think i, I think i did you know fairly well whatever i did i know i never thought i was going to get the part but anyway uh we do the scenes and the you know and bob and sherry they say well um they knew I had uh, done uh, the title song for Happiness, and I had also done uh, a few songs for the Tao of Steve, including the title song. That was another Good Machine film. Those were both Good Machine films. So they knew I had written songs for both those films. 
And they said, uh, are you an actor or, or are you a musician? Well, I go, look, whatever you got here. I don't know. <laughs> whatever job you got over here. Sure. Then they were um, jokingly said, well, I thought it was kind of jokingly. They said, well, could you write us a song? I really didn't think they were that serious. But then I had the script. I went home and I basically, you know, just went through the script and just taking pertinent things that either Harvey said or were in the script, you know, descriptions or whatever, and kind of strung them together in, into a song. And and it's it's one of my things that when I've done these songs for films that I like to have the title of the song be the title or, you know, the chorus. Mm-hmm. You know, some you could write a song and just call it, you know, Harvey Picar or American Hero, whatever. You could call it any anything, but I don't like to do that. I like to... I like to have it. So it's so it's really clear that it's tailor-made for the film. You know, so I wrote a song called American Splendor. The chorus is, where is my American Splendor in a world that's cloudy and gray? Okay, so yeah, I was going to ask, like, where the lyrics came from, whether it was because you already had sort of a past association with Picar and with his comics, or whether it was sort of customized for the film. Yeah, it was totally customized from the film. I had some awareness of the comic books, and I had written a song... Uh, for a short film that I worked on as the sound editor, written and directed by a friend of mine named Barry Strugatz, who wrote Married to the Mob. And he was a big Harvey Picard fan. So anyway, I wrote this song called I Just Want to Be Your Steve McQueen. And that ended up being in the Dow of Steve, too. Nice. Somehow when uh, Harvey Picard came up, uh, Barry filled me in a little about that. But mostly I had the script and was just keying on things in the actual script so I think that in in terms of the chorus, I think the scene where those two guys with the bed or whatever, they're walking around outside his window and it becomes the cover of American Splendor 1, I think. Mm-hmm. It may have described that it was a gray day or you know, however it was put. But other things were just things that he said or things that happened in the script. I wrote the song. I sent it to Bob and Sherry. And initially, there wasn't much of a reaction. And then they called me in. I think they called me and they said, well, HBO needs a bigger name, so you're not playing Harvey Picard, as if I ever thought I was going to be playing Harvey Picard. So I really wasn't that broken up about that. I mean, it would have been nice, but I I, I never thought I was going to play that. Okay, so then they said, well, could you come in and audition for some of these smaller parts? You know, all those guys that uh, hang out, Right. They, were, they they actually had more lines. The guys that hang out at you know the garage sales or whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think there's really only one, well no there's two lines. I know Danny Hoke and then you had Eli or you're having Eli on. The That's show. right. He had one line, but there but there was more. There there was a scene, and I don't think this is in the movie because I just recently watched it again. There was a scene where after Harvey starts doing the comic book and. He's walking down the street and these guys from the neighborhood, I guess the same guys, and they're like, hey, look who it is, Captain America, (laughs) busting his balls. So I I read for some of those parts, and then another couple weeks go by, I guess, or something, and Sherry said, well, you know, we decided you're too similar to Harvey. But, uh, But then they said, I think they said in the same conversation, we think you're too similar, but uh, we had this idea we're going to write you into the scene, the scene where the play is going on. We're going to write you in. You're going to sing the song. And then it's going to be this whole transition into the whole next section of the movie. 
Uh, I said, okay, that sounds great. But Oh, but you have to uh, pay your own way to uh, Cleveland. Well, okay, that's all right. Okay, I'll do that. That's funny that you had to pay. I mean, it's not funny, but uh, Eli Ganias had to pay his own way to play that role as well. So uh, To Cleveland? To Cleveland. So Yeah. You know. Well, I guess that's kind of understandable because they would say, well, we can get uh, somebody to do one line in Cleveland, you know? Sure, sure. So it seems like this whole funny sequence of events where you – like you were invited into this whole thing and then they wouldn't let you go. Like they kept sort of uh, asking, hey, why don't you try out for this? Or why don't you do that? Why, well, what about this? It's like every time you think you're done well, with them. I'm a very likable guy, you know, they keep having me back, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the strength thing is that I, I don't know uh, how, what they really thought of it actually, to tell you the truth after all that. I, I don't know, you know, if they thought it was funny, serious or what, but they did say it was going to be a big transitional thing in the movie. Yeah, which it definitely is. It, it was kind of disappointing that I only got to sing the chorus over and over. I didn't even get to sing one verse of it at all. So as I say, they just had me do it over and over and I was playing it live and the guy behind me is just pretending to play the piano and they dubbed him in later. Okay. But I was actually playing live. I wasn't lip syncing or, or playing any track. But but isn't uh, the full song on the DVD like as an Easter egg? Right. What happened was I went to the um, premiere party. The premiere was on 23rd Street. Yeah, and then... I was at that premiere too. Oh, cool. Yeah, so, you know, they had the party was somewhere nearby. And I guess it was some kind of warehouse or something. I don't know. And I got in there and all these people were asking me like, oh, how come your song's not on the soundtrack album? I didn't even know there was a soundtrack album and why would they tell me if I'm not on it? So, <laughs> And then they were giving out the albums. And then you know, the album was just basically songs that Harvey would have liked, I guess. Mm -hmm. Jazz songs and some score and then two versions of Ain't That Peculiar. Right. But at the party, um, this woman who was a... I guess she was a VP at HBO, Maude Nadler. She's been gone from HBO for many years. She was very involved in the film. And she, who was a big supporter of the song, and was talking to this guy, John, from Sparkle. Is that the place? Oh, from Twinkle. I said Sparkle. Well, I was close. Yeah. We were talking, and he was saying how he was working on the DVD, and uh, they could use some extras. And then I mentioned that I had a recording of the entire song, and, oh, that would be great. We'll put it on as an extra. And then I managed to get the whole song as, as one of the – and there aren't that many extras on the DVD, so it's, it's a pretty good thing. And then and I made a lot more than I'm sure I would have made from the album, so it, it actually worked out for me better well, cool. anyway from that point of view. Yeah, yeah. So that was great. Yeah, just to clarify the timeline, because I know one of the things that we've discovered as we've been working on the podcast is that the movie was originally filmed sort of like shortly after 9-11, and they originally intended it just to be an HBO film. And then, you know, when they started seeing like, you know, how it was coming out, they thought we could actually do a release on this. So when right. you were originally contacted, was that before September 11th? Or it was before Paul Giamatti was cast, I guess. Well, it was, yeah, it definitely had to be before Paul Giamatti was cast because I was auditioning for Harvey Picar. But then, I, like I say, the the next call that I got, I think they did. I they think I think they did mention that it was Paul Giamatti. And I remember thinking at the time, well, a bigger name. Well, Paul Giamatti is not that big of a name either. I was thinking at the time, not that I'm not that he's not bigger than me, who never did anything. 
but he wasn't like he was Brad Pitt or something. Not that Brad <laughs> that Pitt would have been, been appropriate. Not that he would have been appropriate. Although Don Don Logue, who plays in in the play within the play, is nothing like Harvey either. But I guess the point the point of the comic book is that Harvey could look like anything anyway, depending on the artist. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, which you you talked about in an earlier podcast, but uh, I think they did mention Paul Giamatti being in it then. But yeah, I I don't remember if the edition was before. I I do remember it was it was hard to get to Cleveland and back, and and I had to bring my own guitar and that you know and the whole security thing. It, it, it did make it hard the traveling, mm-hmm. and this was post nine eleven. Yeah, it was. It actually, I I think we might have filmed the scene on Thanksgiving Day or the day before Thanksgiving. I think the day before Thanksgiving. I think I had to travel back on Thanksgiving to New York. And what was that experience like? Actually, filming the scene that you were in. Actually, it was it was very cool because there were a lot of actors involved in that scene or just that day. So I remember that they had this car picking up the actors and from the hotels and whatever. And, you know, Hope Davis was in the car there with us and maybe Molly Shannon. I think we picked up Molly Shannon. I think she's from Cleveland and she was staying with her parents or something. Okay. And then, uh, you know, Paul Giamatti was there and then Donald Logue, of course, was there because he's in the scene too. And I already had knew him because he was the star of The Dow of Steve and I did the songs for that. Right, right. So uh, they had these RVs outside where hang out there and just like jamming on the guitar and whatever, me and Donald. And, uh, oh, that's fun. And then James Urbaniak was there too for some reason. I mean, obviously they must have been shooting some other scene. I think he might also play the guitar or he was into it. And oh. I mean, he was a very nice guy too. And I, I think at the time Paul Giamatti was, I think he even said, oh yeah, I like that song. Could you get me a copy? I think then I sent him a copy. Uh, Did you meet Harvey and Joyce? I never met them. Even though I had heard that, that like Harvey would come all the time to, for free food or something. <laughs> That's not to like the Harvey. set every day, but he wasn't there that day. Okay. But I uh, then heard before the movie came out, I think through Ted Hope, you know, who runs Good Machine, I think they were saying, oh, you know, Joyce really loves the song. You know, could you get her a copy of the song? And I burned it on a CD and they gave it to her. And actually on the uh, director's commentary, Joyce says, oh, this is the song that everyone couldn't get out of their heads. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, yeah, we had a whole uh, fun time with all, all the actors there. I mean, and what did you end up thinking of Paul Giamatti's performance and the film overall once you, you know, once you were at the premiere and saw it later and all that stuff? Oh, I thought he was great. I mean, I, I probably would have done it differently. Not that anyone cares how I would have acted it. But and I mean, and I think that's I mean, he did what they wanted anyway. But I thought in my mind, like, uh, you know, Harvey should have been angrier, you know, you mean just in general? Yeah, he's a more of an angry guy. That's all I'm saying. And you, you get that from his comics or from appearances on Letterman? Yeah, or? I guess from the comic books. And the film kind of made him more like a lovable loser or something. Yeah. You know? Right. But I think that's what they wanted. So, I, I mean, if I had, I had had that in my mind to do it that way, it probably wouldn't have been what they wanted anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, you know, they were always trying to balance the, the sort of respect for you know, his very particular aesthetic and, and approach to narrative and storytelling and his persona with something that would be in some way pleasing to audiences. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think they wanted the way. In fact, I did see Harvey at the party there at the premiere party, mm-hmm. but I just 
figured, you know, why, why, what am I going to say something? I'm going to say, Oh, I wrote the song. You probably wouldn't care. So I didn't, you know, oh, I didn't. I'm so sure I didn't, would have uh, been very, he was eating donuts or hot dogs or something. <laughs> I think he was eating but, white uh, castle hamburgers. I did want to say, uh, on a tangent, kind of a tangent that, uh, and they're always changing the rules for how what songs have to do to be eligible for Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. In fact, during that time, you had to submit sheet music, and I think that's all you had to do. And you have to you had to uh, affirm or attest or whatever that you wrote the song, especially for the film, mm-hmm. which was true in this case. So I submitted it, and I got a letter back from the executive board of the music division say it wasn't wasn't a quote-unquote substantive rendition of the song you mean what actually appeared in the film right right because they only played like the chorus yeah yeah so i'm just saying i mean they don't explain what what would be a substantive rendition but i'm just i'm just saying in case there's any aspiring songwriters out there right keep this is what happened even though i have a song called american splendor and it's in the movie american splendor it was not a substantive rendition. <laughs> Somehow that seems very appropriate for this. You know, I understand that it wasn't, you know, not that much of the song was in there. But, you know, it's kind of funny because they have changed the rules somewhat. But still, I mean, you used to get all these songs winning that were just on the tail credits mm-hmm. that had nothing to do with the movie whatsoever. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? And those were eligible. Right. And those have been eligible. <laughs> I, I, but I get a song that's like directly related to the film and is in the film, you know? <laughs> yeah, the ironies are wasn't, are compounding. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting category because your odds are really not bad, no matter what you write. Because, I mean, if, assuming that they admit that you're eligible. But because uh, there was another year where I submitted, I, I wrote some songs for the film Palindromes, another Todd Solon's film, and I submitted four songs. And they said the three of them were eligible, whatever. And I saw the list of films that were, they changed the rules a little. They had the screenings that year. You had to be part of the screening so they would see where the songs were. And that. Mm-hmm. So there were only about 30, 40 eligible songs. I mean, I'm just trying to say compared to any other category where if you're an actor, you're up, you know, an infinite amount of acting, you know. In right. Anybody who acted, I mean, you know, thousands of lead actors or whatever, not that anyone's hearing of those movies but theoretically whereas Mm -hmm. only 40 original songs in a year or whatever it's pretty good odds when you think about it that's true it does limit the competition a bit yeah of songs that have been written specifically for films yeah right right so i guess i sort of asked it before but did you grow up reading comics or have a much connection to american splendor at all or i read comics but you know superhero comics or you know mad magazine or right or anything really i mean i i can't say that i read uh that i read american splendor i mean i've read other weird you know things before that like you know flaming carrot or whatever oh yeah Bob i can't say that i was a but when you were almost called out of the blue to audition for the role did you go out and buy some american splendor comics or do some research or... yeah i think i did some research but i mean i had the script and that was really what you know mm-hmm. it's just going by this i mean the thing is i knew about it but i i might not have known right well it seems like it kind of fits into the same cultural niche that your music and and the mu- movies that you'd worked on previously so it doesn't seem like that strange you know yeah, no, I mean, I knew enough about it, but I can't say how much I had seen. I'm sure I did had seen things, but, 
you know, I'm I'm just saying I wasn't like collecting American Splendor comic books sure, or anything. Sure. So one other question. I read that you once recorded a cover of Rupert Holmes' light rock classic Escape, the Pina Colada song, which of course is featured prominently in the movie. So is that just one of those random coincidences? That's just a total coincidence, which, you know, it's funny because that came up the other day and that was like, you know, about the getting caught in the rain. And then someone pointed out that, yeah, that the song was used. Yeah. When uh, Judah's going, I'm a genuine nerd, Harvey. This movie has uplifted me. Yeah. I, uh, this friend of mine, um, uh, Andrew Curry, he, he has like this obsession or love for light rock of the seventies. Uh-huh. And he had this idea to make a a compilation, and I was really the first one to get on board. I started posting songs that I thought were in the genre that, because I do a lot of YouTube videos where I'm just singing live. Okay. Originals and, but a lot of covers, you know. And so I started posting things that I, of the, what I thought was in the genre, like Brandy and uh, <laughs> so, but anyway, according to him, those those were soft rock. Those weren't light rock. I'm just telling you how specific the, to him this genre is. But anyway, he started to get it on board and he made a list. And then I somehow, along with the guy who I, I, I worked with a lot on my albums, I mean, I gave showed him a list and my friend who I work with thought like that would be a fun one to do. I mean, we changed it completely around. So it's now kind of a, a soul song almost and there's spoken word there in the middle and oh wow and everything i and i totally removed like the main hook of that thing that i took that out of the whole uh so i really revolutionized the whole the whole thing yeah sounds so like this it. might be the version of escape if you don't like escape right this might be it you know if you're, if you're trying to escape from the rupert Version. Yeah, it's kind of like if the '70s version of Jay Giles Band did it or something. Oh, nice. Okay. You know, and but with some spoken word in there. It's like Peter Wolf maybe doing spoken word in there. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. It's totally unlike the original. Let's let's put it that way. You know. Intriguing. Yeah, I mean the compilation itself has all kinds of songs, and some of them are faithful, you know, right, renditions right. of the originals, but mine isn't. You know. So is your version on your YouTube channel or is there another place? Uh, you can, um, that is available on YouTube. It's on Spotify too. It's, uh, it's everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to tell us about the movie or anything else that's going on with you and how your listeners can find you online? Well, I did recently put out my seventh album actually, which is called If Not Now Later. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, you can find me if you know how to spell my name, which I'm the only one by you know my combination first and last name in the world, as far as I know. Nice. So that's E Y T A N M I R S K Y. So if you look me up, you'll find me everywhere. You know, but you know you can find me on Spotify, iTunes, you know, Amazon, whatever, all the all the places, Bandcamp. If you look me up, you'll find me because I'm the only one. You know, you won't have to right. ponder whether whether it's me. Could this be the right one? You know, yeah. Some of my earlier albums do have, you know, all these songs that we're talking about. I Just Want to Be Your Steve McQueen from The Dow of Steve. My, I think it was my fourth album, which was called Everyone's Having Fun Tonight, had uh, American Splendor, and that's the theme to happiness on it. All right. So, you know, there's that. But there's no big hit like that on my uh, recent album. But they're still good. Well, give it time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, someone might come... Uh, licensing it yeah yeah and if not now later exactly exactly 
All right. Well, thanks, Eitan, so much for being on Scene by Scene. Thank you. I look forward to uh, listening to it. Where is my American splendor? Where is my American splendor? Where is my American splendor? And now back to our breakdown of scene 22 with special guest Whitney Matheson. It is also very cool, which we discovered as we were watching that that song playing before that, like sort of over the rest of the movie is actually Robert Crumb. Yes, and I didn't realize yeah. that. I like how they got that in there. And actually talking about Crumb, so Joyce diagnoses, you know, finishes up her diagnoses from the previous episode and diagnoses Mr. Boats as having paranoid personality disorder because he had accused Toby of being a spy. And I'm just kind of wondering what country Toby would be a spy for. <laughs> Macedonia. <laughs> it's got to be Macedonia. It's got to be Macedonia. <laughs> Oh like gosh. what would lead him to think that Toby was a spy? I love I love going down Planet that line. Nerd. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. exactly. <laughs> and hilarious. then um, I looked up what being polymorphously perverse is. Do you guys oh, are no, you familiar with that one? <laughs> Go ahead. So according to Freud, when children are born, they are polymorphously perverse because they derive pleasure from all sorts of experiences. They don't distinguish between okay. like, pleasure in their genital area or in their mouth or their other parts of their bodies. Yeah. And it's just, it's all the same and it's all good. Oh. And as we're socialized and as we become heterosexually normative, we are told, you know, that you are only supposed to find gratification in your genital area. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't follow into that pattern and you just continue to find sexual pleasure in all sorts of other ways in piggyback rides for instance or if you guys remember crumb the movie by terry zweigoff do you remember what crumb himself admitted to being sexually excited by when he was very young oh gosh i don't remember do you remember bugs bunny yes (laughs) oh looney tunes (laughs) yep (laughs) yep (laughs) so anyhow yeah I think my friend. There you go. I think my buddy Jonathan Ames is polymorphously oh, no. perverse. You, this is, you know, this is going out there. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I think he'd admit to that. Sorry, Jonathan. He derives pleasure from many ways. Oh, you there know? you go. Well, we're the I, ones who are limited. It's us. Exactly. We suffer <laughs> by normative values. I'd enjoy a piggyback ride, just so I don't know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we're all polymorphic. Well, after yeah. the show's over, we'll That's we'll right. give each other piggyback rides. So. Do we want to do any shout outs for Donald Logue and Molly Shannon? Just, you know, since yeah, this Molly is their Shannon, one. Famously from Saturday Night Live. And what was the name of the character that I was trying to remember? Everybody knows. She's just done a million bazillion yeah, no, things. No, I love her. She's but amazing. Yeah, you know, she did, yeah, Mary Catherine Gallagher. That's but right. She's, and she's started still a around movie. And doing she's superstar awesome stuff. stuff. And right. she's from Cleveland originally, oh. from that area. So I think I remember somebody telling me that she was available because they were shooting in Cleveland, and she was like, "Sure, you know, sure. I'm around." Oh, wow. And then Donald Logue, he was in a previous Dow Good Steve. Machine production, Dow of Steve. So that's oh, sort of where that I, came from. I feel like didn't he play a Batman character? Yeah, he's in Gotham. 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 Okay. He's a recurring character in Gotham. Right. And Sons of Anarchy, he's also been a Law and Order oh. SVU. He's all over the place. 
And it was cool to see like this other like I, I was I, I don't know if you guys were thinking at any point, but it's like, do you think maybe they auditioned for those roles and they were in the running? I mean, I it just kind of made you think that and it made you think like, wow, how how differently because I really feel like Paul Giamatti owns this role so much. Right. Like, it's impossible to oh, imagine yeah. anyone else. Well, that's why I would have cast similar, but very different to, to make the point. Right. You know, like iterations, which we talked about earlier in earlier podcasts, like how. That's what this movie also kind of recognizes is all the iterations of Harvey Picar. Exactly. Who is the real Harvey Picar? So this is like Harvey Picar number four, I think. It was almost like truck driver Harvey. Yes, you know, totally. He's big, so big. You know, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I, I like looking at that kind of Harvey too. Yeah, it was interesting. Because he comes off like that in his personality. Mm -hmm. You know, like when in his writing, he comes off as very blue collar. You and know? definitely some of the way other artists drew him, he had more of that kind of mm -hmm. physicality. Sure. And like when I did the quitter, when he beats up people, mm -hmm. it was hard, you know, because I knew an older Harvey. Right. To like go, wait a second, he did what? Right. You know, and then seeing a version of that iteration, you know, mm -hmm. like bully Harvey made sense to me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah, after the play stuff. So they're at the airport. Yeah. That's the next part of it. You know, sad looks from Joyce. Yeah, so okay. on the moving walkway. I'm glad you're here. It'd be interesting to have the other gender perspective because I have to say, like, you're that... welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm glad I'm. I'm glad I'm with this scene because it is a very Joyce centric. Yeah. Scene. Yeah. Maybe the first like minute or so isn't really, but yeah, it turns. I feel like this. All, this chunk kind of belongs to Joyce in a big way. Yeah. Yeah. So I have I have a question, and then I'll throw it to you. So yeah. my my thought was, uh, I mean, I didn't realize to the extent that I was identifying with Harvey as the character in the play, but that at that moment when she sort of just out of nowhere is like, you know, vasectomies are reversible, and I want to have kids, I was as shocked and kind of irritated as Harvey was at that point because I, I just felt like. Where is this coming from? Like, we had a deal, you know? Yeah. I also, though, I feel like this is the first point in the movie where you, like, you really only see her through his eyes until mm -hmm. that moment in the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, we I get think. a little bit of her life before, you know, the first time we meet her, she's in when her she's comic book in the store. Comic book shop. And we, yeah. They yeah. see her teaching the prisoners and there's a few shots of, or i guess of i should her, say like her, her internal life this is like the first time when okay you know you're not seeing everything through harvey which is great and yeah that does seem to come out of the blue but it's nice because up until now it's all been like you know harvey's commentary on the relationship mm -hmm. so how do you <laughs> how do you relate to this scene how do i relate to it yeah. i mean i don't know that i've had a moment in an airport like that but i would say that She's probably like mid to late thirties. She was at this point. about thirty-three at that point. Yeah. Okay, okay. So I mean, I do relate to that in just the, in the a maternal way as being around that same age when I, you know, suddenly started to feel mm -hmm. a similar way because I was I was married for like ten years before I really even thought about or you know seriously considered. Having kids, so yeah, I and you do I, have a child now. I do, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. She's yeah, I have a kid. She's six, so yeah, I do relate to that to that moment of like suddenly feeling like wait a minute, and you know, sort of seeing other mothers with their kids and mm -hmm. want, suddenly wanting to have that conversation, even if like maybe you've not had that before. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I definitely have heard 
women talk about that, the biological clock and things like that. And I know in my own life, like my wife and I didn't talk about kids for a long time. And then all of a sudden it was something she wanted to talk about yeah, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and then a few years later we had a child. <laughs> but so, it definitely, I think I had a similar reaction to Harvey when, when Sari started talking about that because I was like, wait, but, but I didn't think we were. So you didn't you know, want to have kids for sure? Before, no, right. I didn't. Because I don't remember and us growing I, up. I don't remember us talking no, I like know, that. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I at some point, you were like, "No, I don't need to do this." And so you felt like you and Sari were not going to have kids. And then one day, well, was, there was some there was some couples therapy involved. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I came around to it, and now I can't imagine oh, so you at not first being didn't a father. Do it at all? Like she asked, and you're like, "Nope." I don't know if I said nope, but I was like, I don't know. I need to be convinced about this. Like wow. we we have a great thing going and we have this partnership and we're free and we can do this and that. We don't have to worry about, you know, mm -hmm. and like I need to be tell me more, you know, <laughs> let's talk about this. And I needed to be convinced. And, and I'm really glad I did. I mean, I can't imagine now what my life would be like if I wasn't a, a father. I love I love being a father. Yeah. But and so I'm really grateful to Sari that she pushed that to happen. But mm -hmm. it was definitely a, a big shock. Or like if I look back at the Josh of, you know, two years before my daughter was born to the right. post-birth, very different oh. set of life uh, goals or, or yeah. like expectations. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Ooh, we're getting deep here. Oh, Ooh. my golly. Ooh. I mean, even I have a biological daughter you myself. You do. You do. <laughs> And you're you in know, touch with her. I am. She turns, I think, 10 early August. Uh-huh. Ruby. And yeah, at the time, I was dating a woman who had two of her own daughters. And at that point in my life, I felt like I'm not going to have kids. I'm, if I'm hanging out with her, she doesn't want. She didn't want more kids. Uh, and I totally got that. You know, plus she had two kids. So there were kids around. Right. You know, kind of thing. Yeah. We didn't need more kids. And then... At some point during that relationship with her, Sarah, good friends in the Catskills, this woman named Lissa and her partner, Julia, reached out to me and they were like, Lissa want, wants to have a kid. And before they go and get an anonymous donor or whatever, they would rather their child, if they were to have one, would be able to know their biological father. They weren't asking for anyone to you know, raise the kid or anything like that. And... I was honored and like because they chose me they liked me and yeah you had buried the lead a little bit there sorry <laughs> <laughs> and then you know i thought about it for a little while it was a profound thought you know like what do i do and then i oh, asked it involves a turkey baster i think yeah, well the, ultimately it did <laughs> there's a whole reason why you can't have sex i'll tell you about that in a minute so a legal reason so i asked my mother what do you think and I asked my then girlfriend with her two daughters, what do you think? And then they both said, okay, then I was down, you know, to do it. And so the process of doing it was really weird because, you know, you have to sign a legal document for if it goes into play. Mm -hmm. thing. And to then, protect the couple who's right. having a child. And, you know, they're a lesbian couple. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like Lisa was hot to try to be with, with me or a man or anything like that. Right. But apparently if you do have physical intercourse somehow that locks you in more so like than then you the, could assert your rights as a father or something like that legally of course how do they know right but anyway we didn't do it that way we did do the as you coined it the turkey baster <laughs> type thing 
and it was the fourth attempt that it worked. And I remember that she would start to ovulate and she was either living in Boston or in the Catskills at the time and would drive in, you know, within that 24 hour oh, time wow. period or whatever it was. And we'd be playing movies in the background where I was in one room doing my thing, ran the cup over like a marathon baton, you know, type thing. And they would do their thing. <laughs> and it was the fourth attempt. And I remember the two movies that were playing in the background during that conception. Revenge of the Nerds. Nope. <laughs> nope. It was Harold and Kumar, White Castle. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Harold yeah. and Kumar go to White Castle. Go to White Castle. White Castle. Which, by the way, thank you. It's a Harvey Picard-ism or a nerdism. <laughs> and the other movie was Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> so sexy. <laughs> hot to trot you know? so wait who was watching which one uh i was watching both of them because it took a little while of all of this and and then uh, uh what nine months later there was ruby and that's a beautiful yeah style. i have this you know i i don't get to see her as much as i'd like to being a freelance cartoonist in you know the most expensive city in the world but uh in fact uh, there was an email i got a few days ago saying Ruby's asking about you. Are you going to come to her birthday party? You know, so of course I'm going to come to her birthday party. And, and I wish I could see her more and I hope to see her more. So that's my story. <laughs> I like. <laughs> yeah. So sort of the last scene before the they get the David Letterman call, it really shows sort of like how much Joyce had collapsed into, as you said, depression mm -hmm. because the apartment was like even worse than it was before when before she moved in and she appears at this point to be sleeping on the couch like does she not sleep in the bedroom with harvey anymore or does she just go from bedroom to couch and back to the bedroom again it was right. it just seemed like she'd taken a permanent residence there she was like nesting yeah it was sad to see but it was interesting the scene where harvey you know is frustrated with her tells her she's got to get out of bed she says stop telling me what to do and then he it cuts quickly to him going to the uh, supermarket and he's buying tea you know which is one of the first things he did way back some episodes ago to woo, to, her. To, to woo her to show that he yeah. actually was thinking about somebody else but then he comes back and he starts throwing the tea at her head and just like such an a-hole thing to do well if you've read the quitter you would then know that that was right up his alley. That's the kind of thing he would do. Well, and I think when you're honest. with somebody in that situation, you just feel really helpless. Mm -hmm. And so you don't really know what to do. And that's kind of the, his, the only thing he knew to do. And so he it's just a combination to take of such like... such pleasure in it, though. I don't yeah, know. I, don't, I mean, just... They, and there was actually a moment in the script. There was like two lines where he actually proposed taking her out to a, a restaurant and, you know, like trying to do something positive and she rejects him and then he goes to like throwing the tea at her so they, uh, they just cut that out which i love that paul giamatti is just so willing to be like a total jerk at times like there's some actors who are just not willing to we were talking about this a play we saw recently where there was an actor who just seemed like he wasn't willing to play that role as dark as he could have gone mm -hmm. and that i love that about Giamatti and actually I'd love to hear your general thoughts about Hope Davis and Giamatti and their chemistry because we've talked about them endlessly but we haven't oh, yeah. you haven't gotten a chance to chime in on those guys so yeah well I will say I also wonder how long this is supposed to be like is her depression lasting that's a good point days is it weeks is it months right, like how right, right, right. it's kind of like vague as to how long and that would definitely affect your patients yes. one's patients oh yeah, yeah for, for sure, sure. And the fact that she's like self-diagnosed herself, which means she's probably not, you know, 
she's not on medication. She's right. not talking to anybody about it. But yeah, like I, I mean, I, I adore Paul Giamatti. I can't imagine anybody else doing this role. Yeah, and as good as he is, he's perfect. And I love Hope Davis. I don't know how much I can say. I'm sure you've already said glowing things about them, but I think they have great chemistry and. Their chemistry is really interesting because they, I think they are very different types of actors. And sometimes I almost feel like they're in two different movies, but somehow the way that they collide in the film really works really well. But I feel like that's, again, great casting because yeah. it's Giamatti is playing a very organic Picar mm-hmm. and Davis is playing a very controlled Joyce. Yeah. You know? And I feel like that's right. That seems right. And you know? they both are cartoonish in a way, but in different ways. Right. But I think appropriately but for the tone of the film. Do you believe the relationship, the way it's portrayed? Do I believe it? I do. Because yeah. it's hard to swallow a little bit at times, you know? Like, especially I, if you buy that their first date, she's moving in. Yeah. You know? But I do. But I that don't actually know. happened. <laughs> it actually happened. Yeah, I totally buy it. And the way they. I, I, I can understand how they would match so well mm-hmm. you know especially like you, when you in the movie and when you see the way they relate to other people and yeah i i totally buy it i just I, keep trying to imagine we've talked about this before like if i weren't so so invested in harvey and his work and from before this movie ever came out if i had just been some person going to on a date to see this romantic <laughs> comedy what the hell would oh, i have thought I of this movie know. and these characters you know it, they're just it's such an oddball I collection of characters it is an oddball it's you know a whole bunch of outliers nerds <laughs> revenge of the nerds but i feel like what's great about the characters the major characters is that I, they're so re- you can find something to relate to in, mm-hmm. in almost each one of them almost you against know? your will yeah, if you're open to it, you can be like, oh, yeah, I see myself in that instance or mm-hmm. when they sit there or that mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. You may not be them exactly, but you can find things to relate to. And that's why I feel like that's part of the success of the story and the way they portrayed it. And yeah. They put it together. Yeah. So, you know. so I, I only have a couple of questions. Do you have any other questions? Did you have one for me I'm or good. Whitney or Whitney, Whitney? anything? Hit us with your questions. I want to hear. Okay. What phone call changed your life? Oh, geez. What? <laughs> I don't even get a moment to prep for this. <laughs> what phone call changed my life? You can take a moment. You can lay down on the futon. <laughs> We've got some tea bags. Maybe, maybe Josh has an answer yeah, do you have a Do you have an instant answer to that? I would say, okay, yeah. So when I was doing AD and I did it first as a webcomic for about two years on Smith Magazine and it got a fair amount of press and publicity so that when it came time to take it to a publisher, it was a known quantity and had already, you know, made a name for itself to an extent. But all the same, my my agent and I put together a very nice proposal and we sent it out to like 10 different publishers and we were getting ready to go out there and try to sell the book. And Pantheon called my agent and made a a preemptive offer before it was actually out. Mm-hmm. And my agent called me and told me the deal that was on the table, and that was Pantheon, which was my number one publisher, like the publisher of Spiegelman, of Chris Ware, of Dan Klaus. And I said, hell yes, let's do it. So that moment 
changed a lot of stuff for me for sure wow so yeah, that, I guess keep it on the positive because I think we've all had phone calls that changed oh, our life that yeah, was yeah, negative. Yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to no. Oddly enough, I mean, my instinct, I'm sure I'll think of a different answer tomorrow, but because we're talking about Harvey Picar, I've always maintained that the graphic novel collaboration we did, The Quitter, put me on the comic book map. I had been doing comic books, but that was the one where it was discussed the most to date at the time. And it got a New York Times review. And so I guess... Harvey calling me up to ask me to draw a one-page American Splendor changed my life. Oh, well, one-page? You mean so before? Yeah, so you're saying like it led to the quitter that would lead really? to taking the long the map, view. Probably is Harvey Picar. See, I knew you would have the best answer since yeah. you. Well, only because of this podcast, it's the best answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have a positive? life-changing phone call oh my gosh i don't know wait i know what it was what? when dean asked you to be on scene by scene with yes, josh and exactly dean. there exactly. it is there it is <laughs> well maybe you can answer it in this second question yes oh gosh here we go what would you title your life's play oh my <laughs> these are like these are insane insane <laughs> questions that i would need like a week to prep for a whole week what you would i title your, your a play about based your life on my life yes what and it doesn't have to be the answer it's an answer just have fun with it my mother's favorite word when i asked her what's your favorite word mom not only did she say it like this i couldn't believe what the word was she said potato chip <laughs> which is two words but anyway right. and i'm like mom why what? she's first of all she loves potato chips i guess but she was like just listen to the way you can say yeah, it." yeah lots of good consonants in there potato chip and it's like i can't beat that right it's now it's true that's, i think my favorite word is good. lordosis what now lordosis do you know what that is no you don't know what lordosis is so it's a spinal curvature that happens to certain people that it gets really kind of curvy and bendy. But if you look at the third definition for lordosis, it has to do something with um, the way the lioness unhinges her hips to present herself to the lion. Oh, jeez. Oh, See, these are not fair because these are questions you have been no, in your head for. preparing <laughs> asking himself. to answer. I mean... Lordosis. <laughs> That's a good word. Uh, what would I title? Do you have an answer to that? I do not. Come on, make one up. It doesn't matter. Josh Newfeld and the Seven Stooges. Oh my God, you did call a comic of yours that <laughs> way more. We it kids. wasn't me, it was Phil. Phil did Another that. high school fight. That's right. And did I. You, ink it or something you drew or parts of it, part of it and everybody did. Oh, yeah, it was oh a jam. Oh my God, that's right. <laughs> So that's your that's your answer right that's now. That's my answer. You don't have like a title like tucked away somewhere in your wallet. Come on. Whitney took all the good titles. What's your <laughs> life's play called? Whitney. Oh, oh my god. I I oh this is like so hard. This is can't you toss me an easier one? What's your favorite color? Mm, I mean it's black. Black. Yeah. yeah. There we go. All right. Well, will you continue to think about that? I have a question for you, Dean. Two questions. One is, since this is the theater episode, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your own plays and, and sort of like where that came from. I know you're a multivariant storyteller 
in all different forms. But also, have you ever had your work adapted into another art form? And what was that like? You mean that I did or someone else did? Whatever. So I would hazard that to answer the second question, second part of the question, that I have adapted my blogging into comics and plays mm-hmm. and essays and stories and whatnot, you know? So, so things that started out sort of as think pieces yeah. slash blog pieces and I evolved. See, yeah, I see the blog as a sketch pad of sorts mm-hmm. anyway, you know? But I feel like I've never, and I think I've mentioned this in the past, I'm not a very confident writer, but I love writing. And like, I feel like when I finally just give up drawing, I will continue to write, you know? <laughs> so that's the direction I'm going in. And so if I've adapted anything, is that, and you know, I, I, I would like to adapt some of my plays into comics, graphic novels, whatever you want to call it, maybe even movies. Mm-hmm. I, I do see whenever I write stuff these days, I try to see how to multi-purpose them, definitely. Yeah. But I also understand the merits and, and uh, virtues of the different mediums. So if I'm going to write it as a play first, it's going to feel like a play. But in the back of my mind, I can see how it could be a movie if I just rewrote it a certain way. Mm -hmm. Same thing with comics. And novel writing is different. I feel like that's a different animal altogether. Is that another thing you're uh, That's something else I've been working on. Wow. So it's all storytelling. I love storytelling. Storyteller. But the thing about plays kind of happened by accident. I was at a wedding for Riley Brown, a former studio mate, cartoonist, and... I was sitting at a table with Fred Van Lente and Crystal Skillman. Uh, I believe this was 2013, 2014, around that time, five years ago, I guess. And I was asking Crystal, who writes plays, what are you doing these days? And she was talking about, you know, some plays she'd been writing or producing or something. And I said, you know, I've always wanted to do a play. You know, I've written a bunch of screenplays, but I feel like when I write these screenplays, there's a lot of talking heads and they're usually in a few different rooms. And that feels more like a play than a movie to me. Mm. And she's like, well, that's interesting because uh, at the time, this theater company, The Brick, uh, was producing a festival where they would take certain cartoonists' works and adapt them into theater or, or maybe there was some original stuff or whatever. And she's like, that's upcoming and they're, they're looking at submissions right now. So she told me about that idea. I went home, I found a screenplay that was actually two stories that were thinly knit together to tell a bigger story, and I cut it in half, and I sent that version to the contact she gave me, who then sent it over to this producer, writer, director, actor, Ian W. Hill, who totally got what I was doing. And he produced my first play called Switch to Kill. And I was bitten by the bug. Mm-hmm. You know, so I started dusting off other kind of screenplays that never made it and then kind of converted, you know, another one into a, a play thanks to another director, pal of mine, who's also an actor, Philip Cruz. And then Ian produced and directed that one. And then Phil produced my and directed my third one called, oh, well, the second one was called Harry Carey Kane. The third one's called The Last Bartender in the World. And now I've written two more where one I might push back in the drawer and the other one I might, you know, I just a few more flourishes and I think I'm done with my fourth play. So cool. Thank you. But also, I remember even before that, like refresh my memory, but I remember you were on some radio show where you, where Billy Dogma was featured and they hired like someone to do like a dramatic reenactment of some dialogue from like a Billy Dogma sequence. And it was really funny because it was like really sort of over the top, you know, like... That someone else did? Yeah. 
And then they went this. into interviewing you and you were chuckling about it because I could tell you were sort of semi-embarrassed to like hear your own words being read back to you by an actor. And it, it's it was a while that ago. happened. That might be a while ago. And I do remember. I have to find that. I feel like I have a clip of it. I would love well, to. Well, I know that I was on the website. Daniel Kramer, who was making kind of like little animations of some oh, the of motion comics, motion comics. Yeah. And then we did a Billy Dobbin one where I did the voiceover and I realized how awful I was <laughs> at doing it. But also because there is a certain language that I write for Billy Dogma yeah. in particular. And then maybe it also gets into my playwriting as well. Mm -hmm. It's hard to pull it off. Yeah. You need a good it's actor to pull, to pull off stylized language. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I read a lot of David Mamet. I love Shakespeare. You mm -hmm. know, I'm trying to think. I like recently I've been reading a lot of Tracy Letts plays. You know, and he's not stylized at all. He just has a really blue collar way of writing fucked up shit, you know, and I love <laughs> in that the vernacular. Kind of and yeah, I also grew up around it. You know, my brother acted in my godmother's play during junior high school years. And your godmother was? Godmother Shelley Winters, you know, famous who, actress. at the actor's studio. Mm -hmm. And I would hang out with Lee Strasberg and all wow. these kind of famous actors, you know, that was insane. But I'm a kid. So what do I know? Right. You know? But it gets into your blood. That's right. You know, I really love the theater. I read somewhere that 1% of Americans go to see theater. Well, that's depressing. 1%. I think more people read comics than go to theater. Well, no, that's I really depressing. That. I grew up in, I mean, most Americans aren't in a town where you can see theater. That's yeah. true. That's how I that's But true. I feel like the thing about theater is you can do it in a town, a small town. Yeah. You just need like barely a stage and a couple people to imagine the space and just behave yeah you know <laughs> just behave you know that's right this is reminding me when a long time ago like maybe 2005 ish i got an email from this french producer this older man who was legit and had produced some movies that i love mm. and was his name ray dadar <laughs> and he um he email, I guess he must have emailed me first, but eventually he, we talked on the phone. And his whole thing, he was like, I want to make a movie of your life. <laughs> I think it, Wait, he was like, that gets back to Dean's question. He was like, uh, <laughs> yes, it does. He's like, what you do with you sh you're sharing your life on this blog? I think it could be a movie. And I was like, really? And he's like, oh, yes, I do. And so I was living in D.C. at the time, and he flew from wherever he was to meet me like at a like hotel restaurant this sounds really weird when i'm telling this story now I but I, I think he had very i do think he had pure intentions you know older man <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have viagra back then yeah. <laughs> yeah and we we had had like conversations and yeah he wanted me to it never happened, pro um, oh. probably all my fault. Because you didn't have a title. I was also like, really? Are you like, this doesn't make much sense. But yes, and for years, periodically, he would, he would be like, Whitney, how are you? Happy Chinese New Year. Or like he would say like <laughs> just random stuff and check in with me. But that never materialized. But I, I've had a few strange experiences like that with people, for whatever reason, reaching out. To me. It's funny because I've had the, the pleasure of emailing Whitney and she oh. often throws in like a fun fact out of nowhere. <laughs> like, I didn't ask where this come from. And I think one time you just ended one email with oh, like, God. 
I grew up five miles away from the largest roller skate. Yeah, the, world, the world's, <laughs> the world's largest, largest yeah. roller skate. I, yeah. That's, That's a good a title. Good title. <laughs> there you go. Right? Call back Ray Dadar. <laughs> tell him that you got a title, which is I grew up five miles from the world's largest roller skate. Yeah. And you're it's all set. Yeah. I think that's your title. Yeah. It's not too late. Maybe it'll happen. Okay. I don't want to end this on like a down note, though. All right. Maybe I'll, I won't yeah, say Yeah, it's not it. like we're talking Do about it. Harvey Picard. <laughs> but I, I am, I will say, I am glad that I'm doing this scene because there are many, throughout the entire thing, I relate to many things about it. So one, which I mentioned, is like, you know, the kid thing around the same age, had the same feeling get it the other when i was 22 so this was i it was post fire so post post 19 post 1999 when i burned the apartment down that's in the previous episode <laughs> i left my very good job and my pretty good setup and moved to chicago moved to a, a midwestern like joyce midwestern city i'd never seen before never been to for the the person I was dating at the time, and now I'm married to, in fact. Uh, so, so it worked out. But yeah. yeah, but so I have had that experience of moving to a strange place, uh. not knowing anybody, mm -hmm. being kind of, and luckily they let me keep my job, so at least I had that. But working, you know, at my apartment, so I completely relate to a lot of those things. And then I also the futon situation. I also relate to that because not really when I moved to Chicago, but 10-ish years ago, I did go through that exact same thing where I was on the couch, mm. in the bed, mm. down. Mm. Completely, yeah, didn't, because Harvey says, like, didn't go to work, didn't, like, didn't do anything. Mm. I mean, I had a job, but I was very good at, like, making it seem like I was working when I wasn't really... Which makes just makes me ask, like, how long did that really last for her? Right, Because, right. I mean, that can last a really long time. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, in that scene, like, it's kind of played, it's probably not realistic that, like, a call from David Letterman pulled her out right. of, you know, a <laughs> it depression. Be, it would be nice if just one little yeah. call could do I mean, that. I would, like, get out of bed for a call with David Letterman. <laughs> um, but I will, oh, and I'm, I feel, I don't like to, I don't want to, you know, take the mood down. But I will say... I was in a very, it was very long that this happened to me and I was very depressed. And one, there were a couple of, a few things that would sometimes get me out of bed. And one of them was Seinfeld reruns. Mm -hmm. I would occasionally get out and go and walk to the other room and watch a Seinfeld rerun mm. at like 7.30 on a weekday. So anyway, good part of the story is i got better and you know got when everything was much better got to a place where i was like working whatever working again and i wrote about all of that so oh. i wrote a few things about just going through that and i wrote one thing specifically about that about seinfeld like how random stuff mm. sometimes can like pull you out of things and not long after that i got a call from Jerry Seinfeld's either manager or publicist and said, Jerry's read your piece and he really loved it. Oh, <laughs> oh how awesome. And he was very touched. Yeah. And he would like to do an interview with you. 
And so, you know, he had like something maybe to promote, but he was only going to do one outlet, one interview. And that was and you. Was with me. Wow. Yeah. How great. I mean, that speaks to, in a different way, you know, Harvey put himself out there, right? When you put yourself out there, in this case, it wasn't Harvey talking about David Letterman, but mm-hmm. someone recognized something in Harvey, you know? Well, you put yourself out there and like you always talk about authentically. Yes. Like when you talk about something that is actually important and genuine, and which is what you and did. And oh, you yeah. did the same yeah. thing. You it made wasn't yourself... like you did that because you were like, I'm going to get... No, not at all. You made yourself vulnerable by doing someone this. responded yeah, to exactly. your vulnerability. Yeah. You know, because, that's... Because, you know, and yeah, I just had, I had to write, I was like, ugh, I just know if I... And I would call, like, even back then, like, it was hard to find people, like, writing about stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I was like, I just know if I write about it, like, somebody's going to relate to it. Or, And I had, I had, little did I know, I had no idea who would mm-hmm. ever, mm-hmm. ever see that. Would you but, be willing to share those links to those with us for the, for the yes, podcast? Yes, but I got to be honest, it might be gone because Because the, the internet disappears, yeah. Well, maybe it's yeah. still on uh, archive.org or, who anyway, knows? we'll see. I, if, yeah. if, if they're still out there, we'd love to link to them. Yes. Thank well, you for sharing I mean, that. Okay, back back to... To joy and yeah. fun. And, yeah. No, that was great. And thanks again for sharing that. You know, that was really cool. Was there anything else that you wanted to... Uh, I don't think I have anything it? else. Okay. I, 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 a question sprung from what Whitney said that, you know, what is the TV show that would get you out of bed? I know the answer, I think, for you, Josh. Mash. Mash. Yeah. Okay. Uh... That's what I thought. For me, it was definitely the Mary Tyler Moore show. Mm, now that's Although a joyful show. It's joyful. I was going to say, I would like to have said Maud because B. Arthur is my queen. That's an intense show, though. But it's intense. So I think it's the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yeah. So Mary Tyler Moore, Seinfeld, and Mash. Yeah. <laughs> We're not go. old at all. At all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that was. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again. Yes, for two thank episodes. you for having me. Yeah. Do you, is there anything else that you would like to share with uh, listeners? Just like self promotion stuff. Well, I do a weekly pop culture newsletter. You should get it. It comes out Fridays. You can learn more at patreon.com slash Whitney Matheson, where you can also throw me some dollars and get cool rewards, or WhitneyMatheson.com. I'm on Twitter at Whitney Matheson. That's all. And what's the newsletter called? It's just called Hi, It's Whitney. Ah. Yes. Her play title. <laughs> That's a horror. There's so play many title. titles. Well, thank you again. Such an honor to have you on for two oh, episodes. Oh, my gosh. I'm so happy I did this. Thank, thank you. you, Whitney. Yeah. And until next time, remember, folks, you can visit us at scenebyscenepodcast.com and scenebyscene on Facebook, where you can subscribe, download past episodes. Visit our store, read up on the show, check out our work, and join the discussion. And until next time, when we'll be discussing scene number 23, this is Josh Newfeld, Dean Haspiel, and your guest, Whitney Matheson. And let's all together now say, on scene by scene with, with Josh, Josh and, and Dean. Dean. And Whitney. And Whitney. <laughs>